Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the first slightly soggy day of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm Catherine Lockerbie. I'm the director. And I have to say to you that you are the luckiest people possibly on the planet today. You're the ones that got the tickets. Well done. Well done. Um, it's usually the role of the person introducing to say a little bit about the author and who they are and their works, explain things. Anyone here not too sure who Alan Bennett is? <laughs> no, fine. Um, this is going to be a very special hour indeed. You all know Alan Bennett's work extremely well. What you may not know is his newest work, The Uncommon Reader, and that is because it's not published until September but we have copies today. So you can get it an entire month ahead of publication. Thank you. You're very welcome. I feel pretty pleased about that. It's, uh, the book is the definition of bliss, I have to tell you. Alan Bennett will be signing copies of it and his other work, of course, afterwards in the signing tent, left and left again. He's going to read to you, take some questions. Please wait for the microphone to come to you and speak nice and clearly, please. That would be lovely. Um, you're in for an hour of total delight. Please welcome Alan Bennett. As Catherine said, the book is called The Uncommon Reader, and the subject will be almost immediately obvious. At Windsor, it was the evening of the state banquet, and as the President of France took his place beside Her Majesty, the royal family formed up behind, and the procession slowly moved off and threw into the Waterloo Chamber. Now I have you to myself, said the Queen, <laughs> smiling to left and right as they glided through the glittering throng. I've been longing to ask you about the writer Jean Genet. <laughs> ah, said the President. Oui. <laughs> the Marseillaise and the National Anthem made for a pause in the proceedings, but when they had taken their seats, <coughs> excuse me, her Majesty turned to the President and resumed. Homosexual and jailbird, was he nevertheless as bad as he was painted? Or, more to the point, and she took up her soup spoon, was he as good? Unbriefed on the subject of the glabrous playwright and novelist, the President looked wildly about for his Minister of Culture but she was being addressed by the Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> Jean Genet, said the Queen again helpfully. Vous le connaissez? <laughs> Bien sûr, said the President. Il m'intéresse, said the Queen. Vraiment. <laughs> the President put down his spoon. It was going to be a long evening. <laughs> It was the dog's fault. They were snobs, and ordinarily, having been in the garden, would have gone up the front steps, where a footman generally opened them the door. Today, though, for some reason, they careered along the terrace, barking their heads off, 
and scampered down the steps again and round the end along the side of the house, where she could hear them yapping at something in one of the yards. It was the City of Westminster Travelling Library, a large, removal-like van parked next to the bins outside one of the kitchen doors. This wasn't a part of the palace she saw much of, and she had certainly never seen the library there before, nor presumably had the dogs, hence the din. So having failed in her attempt to calm them down, she went up the little steps of the van in order to apologise. The driver was sitting with his back to her, sticking a label on a book. The only seeming borrower, a thin ginger-haired boy in white overalls, crouched in the aisle reading. Neither of them took any notice of the new arrival, so she coughed and said, <coughs> I'm sorry about this awful racket. Whereupon the driver got up so suddenly he banged his head on the reference section and the boy in the aisle scrambled to his feet and upset photography and fashion. She put her head out of the door. Shut up this minute, you silly creatures, which, as had been the move's intention, gave the driver librarian time to compose himself and the boy to pick up the books. One has never seen you here before, Mr... Hutchings, Your Majesty. Every Wednesday, ma'am. Really? I never knew that. Have you come far? <laughs> uh, only from Westminster, ma'am. And you are? Uh, uh, Norman. Norman, ma'am. Seekins. And where do you work? In the kitchen, ma'am. Oh. Do you have much time for reading? Not really, ma'am. I'm the same. Though, now that one is here, I suppose one ought to borrow a book. Mr. Hutchings smiled helpfully. Is there anything you would recommend? What does Your Majesty like? The Queen hesitated, because to tell the truth, she wasn't sure. She'd never taken much interest in reading. She read, of course, as one did. But liking books was something she left to other people. It was a hobby, and it was in the nature of her job that she didn't have hobbies. Jogging, growing roses, chess or rock climbing, <laughs> cake decoration, model aeroplanes. No. <laughs> hobbies involved preferences, and preferences had to be avoided. Preferences excluded people. One had no preferences. Her job was to take an interest, not to be interested herself. And besides, Reading wasn't doing. She was a doer. So she gazed round the book-lined van and played for time. Is one allowed to borrow a book? One doesn't have a ticket. <laughs> no problem, said Mr Hutchings. One is a pensioner, said the Queen. <laughs> Not that she was sure this made any difference. Ma'am can borrow up to six books. Six? Heavens! Meanwhile, the ginger-haired young man <coughs> had made his choice and given his book to the librarian to stamp. Still playing for time, the Queen picked it up. What have you chosen, Mr. Seekins? Expecting it to be... Well, she wasn't sure what she expected, but it wasn't what it was. Oh, Cecil Beaton. Did you know him? <laughs> uh, no, ma'am. No, of course not. 
you'd be too young. He always used to be round here, snapping away, and a bit of a tartar. Stand here, stand, stand there, snap, snap. So there's a book about him now. Uh, several, ma'am. Really? I suppose everyone gets written about sooner or later. She riffled through it. There's probably a picture of me in it somewhere. Oh, yes, that one. Of course, he wasn't just a photographer. He designed, too, Oklahoma, things like that. I, I, I think it was my fair lady, ma'am. <laughs> oh, was it? said the Queen, unused to being contradicted. <laughs> Where did you say you worked? <laughs> she put the book back in the boy's big red hands. Uh, in the kitchens, ma'am. She'd still not solved her problem, knowing that if she left without a book, it would seem to Mr. Hutchings that the library was somehow lacking. Then, on a shelf of rather worn-looking volumes, she saw a name she remembered. Ivy Compton Burnett. I can read that. She took the book and gave it to Mr. Hutchings to stamp. What a treat! She hugged it unconvincingly before opening it. Oh, the last time it was taken out was in 1989. <laughs> uh, she's not a popular author, ma'am. Why, I wonder? I made her a dame. <laughs> Mr. Hutchings refrained from saying that this wasn't necessarily the road to the public's heart. <laughs> the Queen looked at the photograph on the back of the jacket. Yes, I remember that hair. A roll like a pie crust that went right round her head. She smiled, and Mr. Hutchings knew that the visit was over. Goodbye. He inclined his head as they had told him at the library to do should this eventuality ever arise. And the Queen went off in the direction of the garden with the dogs madly barking again while Norman, bearing his Cecil Beaton, skirted a, <coughs> sorry, skirted a chef lounging by the bins having a cigarette and went back to the kitchens. Shutting up the van and driving away, Mr. Hutchings reflected that a novel by Ivy Compton Burnett would take some reading. He had never got very far with her himself and thought, rightly, that borrowing the book had just been a polite gesture. Still, it was one that he appreciated and as more than a courtesy. The council was always threatening to cut back on the library and the patronage of so distinguished a borrower, or customer as the council preferred to call it, <laughs> would do him no harm. We have a travelling library, the Queen said to her husband that evening. Comes every Wednesday. Jolly good. <laughs> Wonders never cease. You remember Oklahoma? Yes, we saw it when we were engaged. Extraordinary to think of it. The dashing blonde boy he had been. Was that Cecil Beaton? said the Queen. No idea. Never liked the fellow. Green shoes. <laughs> he smelt delicious. What's that? A, a book. I borrowed it. Dead, I suppose. Who? The beaten fellow. Oh, yes. Everybody's dead. Good show, though. When he went off to bed, glumly singing, Oh, what a beautiful morning. 
as the Queen opened her book. The following week, she had intended to give the book to a lady-in-waiting to return, but finding herself taken captive by her private secretary and forced to go through the diary in far greater detail than she thought necessary, she was able to cut off discussion of a tour around a road research laboratory by suddenly declaring it was Wednesday and she had to go change her book at the travelling library. <laughs> her private secretary, Sir Kevin Scatchard, an over-conscientious New Zealander of whom great things were expected, was left to gather up his papers and wonder why Mam needed a travelling library when she had several of the stationary kind of her own. <laughs> Minus the dogs, this visit was somewhat calmer, though once again Norman was the only borrower. How did you find it, Mam? asked Mr Hutchins. Dame Ivy, a little dry. And everybody talks the same way. Did you notice that? To tell you the truth, ma'am, I, I never got through more than a few pages. How far did Your Majesty get? Oh, to the end. Once I start a book, I finish it. That was the way one was brought up. Books, bread and butter, mashed potato. <laughs> one finishes what's on one's plate. That's always been my philosophy. There was actually no need to have brought the book back to all, ma'am. We're downsizing and all the books on that shelf are free. You mean I can have it? She clutched the book to her. I'm glad I came. <laughs> Good afternoon, Mr. Seekins. More Cecil Beaton? Norman showed her the book he was looking at, this time something on David Hockney. She leafed through it gazing unperturbed at young men's bottoms hauled out of Californian swimming pools <laughs> or lying together on unmade beds. Some of them, she said, some of them don't seem altogether finished. This one is quite definitely smudged. Uh, I think that was his style then, ma'am, said Norman. He's actually quite a good draftsman. The Queen looked at Norman again work in the kitchens? <laughs> yes, ma'am. She hadn't really intended to take out another book, but decided that now she was here, it was perhaps easier to do it than not, though regarding what book to choose, she felt as baffled as she had done the previous week. The truth was, she didn't really want a book at all, and certainly not another Ivy Compton Burnett, which was too hard going altogether. So it was lucky that this time her eye happened to fall on a, on a reissued volume of Nancy Mitford's The Pursuit of Love. She picked it up. Now, didn't her sister marry the Mosley man? Mr. Hutching said he believed she did. And the mother-in-law of another sister was my mistress of the robes. I don't know about that, ma'am. Then, of course, there was a rather sad sister who had the fling with Hitler, and one became a communist. And I think there was another besides. But this is Nancy. Yes, ma'am. Good. Novels seldom came as well-connected as this. <laughs> and the Queen felt correspondingly reassured. So it was with some confidence she gave the book to Mr. Hutchings to be stamped. The pursuit of love turned out to be a fortunate choice, and in its way a momentous one. Had Her Majesty gone for another Duff Reed, an early George Eliot, say, or a late Henry James, 
novice reader that she was, she might have been put off reading for good and there would be no story to tell. Books, she would have thought, were work. As it was, in, with this one, she soon became engrossed and passing her bedroom that night, clutching his hot water bottle, the Duke heard her laugh out loud. He put his head round the door. All right, old girl? Of course. I'm reading. Again? <laughs> and he went off, shaking his head. The next morning, she had a little sniffle, and having no engagement, stayed in bed, saying she felt she might be getting flu. This was uncharacteristic and also not true. It was actually so that she could get on with her book. <laughs> the Queen has a slight cold, was what the nation was told. But what it was not told, and what the Queen herself did not know, was that this was only the first of a series of, of accommodations, some of them far-reaching, that her reading was going to involve. The following day, the Queen had one of her regular sessions with her private secretary, with, as one of the items on the agenda, what these days is called human resources. In my day, she had told him, it was called personnel. Although, actually, it wasn't. It was called the servants. <laughs> she mentioned this, too, knowing it would provoke a reaction. That could be misconstrued, ma'am, said Sir Kevin. One's aim is always to give the public no cause for offence. Servants sends the wrong message. Human resources, said the Queen, sends no message at all. At least not to me. However, since we're on the subject of human resources, there is one human resource, currently working in the kitchens, whom I would like promoted, or at any rate brought upstairs. Sir Kevin had never heard of Seekins, but on consulting several underlings, Norman was eventually located. I cannot understand, said Her Majesty, what he is doing in the kitchens in the first place. He's obviously a young man of some intelligence. Not dolly enough, said the equerry, though, though to the private secretary, not to the Queen. Thin, ginger-haired, have a heart. Madam seems to like him, said Sir Kevin. She wants him on her floor. Thus it was that Norman found himself emancipated from washing dishes and fitted, with some difficulty, into a page's uniform and brought into waiting, where one of his first jobs was predictably to do with the library. Not free the following Wednesday, gymnastics in Nuneaton, the, <laughs> Queen, the Queen gave Norman her Nancy Mitford to return, telling him that there, were apparent, there was apparently a sequel and she wanted to read that too, plus anything else besides he thought she might fancy. This commission caused him some anxiety. Well read up to a point, he was largely self-taught, his reading tending to be determined by whether an author was gay or not. Fairly wide remit though this was, <laughs> it did narrow things down a bit, particularly when choosing a book for someone else, and the more so when that someone else happened to be the Queen. Nor was Mr Hutchings much help, except that when he mentioned dogs as a subject that might interest Her Majesty, it reminded Norman of something he had read that could fit the bill, J.R. Ackerley's novel, My Dog Tulip. Mr. Hutchings was dubious, pointing out that it was a gay book. Is it? 
said Norman innocently. I didn't realise that. She'll think it's just about the dog. He took the books up to the Queen's floor and having been told to make himself as scarce as possible, when the Duke came by, hid behind a Boule cabinet. Saw this extraordinary creature this afternoon, HRH reported later. Ginger stick in waiting. <laughs> oh, that would be Norman, said the Queen. I met him in the travelling library. He used to work in the kitchen. I can see why, said the Duke. He's very intelligent, said the Queen. He'll have to be, said the Duke, looking like that. <laughs> Tulip, said the Queen to Norman later. Funny name for a dog. It's supposed to be fiction, ma'am, only the author did have a dog in life, an Alsatian. He didn't tell her its name was Queenie. <laughs> so it's really disguised autobiography. Oh, said the Queen, why disguise it? Norman thought she would find out when she read the book, but didn't say so. None of his friends liked the dog, ma'am. Oh, one knows that feeling very well, said the Queen. And Norman nodded solemnly, the royal dogs being generally unpopular. The Queen smiled. What a find Norman was. She knew that she inhibited and made people shy, and few of the servants behaved like themselves. Oddity though he was, Norman was himself, and seemed incapable of being anything else. That was very rare. The Queen, though, might have been less pleased had she known that Norman was unaffected by her because she seemed to him so ancient, her royalty obliterated by her seniority. Queen she might be, but she was also an old lady. And since Norman's introduction to the world of work had been via an old people's home on Tyneside, old ladies held no terrors for him. <laughs> to Norman she was his employer, but her age made her as much patient as Queen, and in both capacities to be humoured, though this was, it's true, before he woke up to how sharp she was and how much wasted. She was also intensely conventional, and when she had started to read, she thought perhaps she ought to do some of it, at least, in the place set aside for the purpose, namely the palace library. But though it was called the library and was indeed lined with books, a book was seldom, if ever, read there. Ultimatums were delivered here, lines drawn, prayer books compiled, and marriages decided upon. But should one want to curl up with a book, the library was not the place. It was not easy even to lay hands on something to read, as on the open shelves, so-called, the books were sequestered behind locked and gilded grills. Many of them were priceless, which was another discouragement. No, if reading was to be done, it were better done in a place not set aside for it. The Queen thought there might be a lesson there, and she went back upstairs. I'm going to go on just uh, reading a, a few extracts from uh, the diaries which are printed in Untold Stories. Um, I, I don't, I, uh, you, you can ask me questions about the, the Queen story. I, I'm not sure I'll be able to answer them because I don't quite know where it comes from, but anyway. Um, 
Uh, th these are just a few extracts. I won't say the dates unless it's relevant to the, to the piece itself. Note how personalised and peopled the material world is at a level almost beneath scrutiny. I'm thinking of the cutlery in the drawer or the crockery I every morning empty from the dishwasher. Some wooden spoons, for instance, I like, think of as friendly. Others are impersonal or without character. Some bowls are favourites, others I have no feeling for at all. There's a friendly fork, a bad knife, and a blue and white plate that is thicker than the others, which I think of as taking the kick if I discriminate against it by using it less. Set down, this seems close to insanity, but it goes back to childhood when the entire household was populated with friends and not friends, and few objects were altogether inanimate, particularly knives and forks. Both shoe brushes had characters. The bad brush with which the polish was put on, the good brush that brought out the shine. This was true of clothes too, with the patchwork blouse I had to wear as a toddler thought of as unf unfriendly, which I always disliked. Sticks had characters and cushions. Sixty years later, more traces of this animistic world persist than I would like, making a mockery of reason and sense. Uh, I live part of the time in Yorkshire, so I'm often on the train to Leeds. That's what this next entry is to do with. On the Leeds train, the conductor announces... The trolley will shortly be coming through with a selection of hot and cold snacks, tea and coffee and other beverages. For your information, pushing the trolley this morning is Miss Castleford, 1996. <laughs> and Miss Castleford duly comes through. Though hardly the busty, brazen apparition one expected, but a rather quiet, shy-looking girl who, not surprisingly, is covered in confusion and fed up at having to cope with the jokes of the bolder passengers, or customers as we now are. Um, from 1993 to 1998, I, I was a trustee of the National Gallery. Um, I, it was always a puzzle to me why I was appointed to this. Uh, I did ask the director and he said, oh, you're the man in the street. Um, but uh, anyway, but I, I, uh, I, do, I wasn't very good at it, but I, it was something I really enjoyed. Uh, and uh, several of the entries uh, in the diary to do with that, including this one. Despite the vindication of the National Gallery in the filmed restoration of Holbein's The Ambassadors, the cleaning controversy rumbles on. One misconception that fogs the argument is to do with the nature of time. Michael Daly, the National Gallery's constant critic, represents time as a benevolent mellowing process whereby paintings grow old gracefully, their colours maturing, the tints changing, but all at the same rate and in the same fashion. So that the composition arrives in the present day Veiled a little, perhaps, but still much as the artist intended. This is, of course, nonsense. Paintings, more often than not, have quite violent and eventful lives. They are loved, after all, and so naturally they get interfered with and touched up. 
and their admirers being fickle, when they get to seem a little old-fashioned, they're dressed up a bit to suit the taste of the time. They limp into the present, coated with centuries of makeup, but still trying to keep body and soul together. Mellowing is just not the word. And this is an entry for the 2nd of January, 1997. I'm sent a complimentary copy of Waterston's Literary Diary, which records the birthdays of various contemporary figures from the world of letters. Here is Dennis Potter on the 17th of May, Michael Frayne on the 8th of September, Edna O'Brien on the 15th of December, and so, naturally, I turn to my own birthday. May 9th is blank, <laughs> except for the note, the first British self-service laundrette is open <laughs> on Queensway, London, 1949. Um, and I, as I say, I spent part of my time in Yorkshire, and this is an entry to do with that. Ring Mr. Redhead, the coal merchant in Ingleton. Hello, Mr. Redhead, it's Alan Bennett. I'm wanting some coal. Goodness me, I am consorting with higher beings. <laughs> Last time I rang Mr. Redhead, he said, Well, I don't care how celebrated you are, you'll never be a patch on your dad. <laughs> I remind him of this. That is correct, and I reiterate it. <laughs> and uh, I think why I wrote that down, it was just the word, use of the word reiterate, which uh, is um, far more... Uh, characteristic of Yorkshire than all the Ebar gum stuff. The Yorkshire speech is, is slightly archaic and uh, archaicism is used slightly ironically. Um, my father, if you ever asked him uh, where something was, he'd say, um, I'll ascertain. This is another National Gallery entry. Sometime this last week, a bearded man in a frock strolled through the National Gallery, observed by warders, though not accosted by them, until he reached the room with the Rembrandts. In front of Rembrandt's self-portrait at the age of 63, he suddenly whips off the frock to reveal that he is stark naked, with strapped to his leg a tube of yellow acrylic. He daubs the beginnings of a pound sign on the portrait before he's wrestled to the ground by a warder and a helpful member of the public and bundled away. The police are called, but before they can forbid anything to be touched, the conservation department are on the scene, remove the painting and wash off the acrylic while it's still wet. Had it dried, the process would have been much more complicated. The upshot is that the painting is back on view the next day Rembrandt doubtless looking even more pissed off than he normally looks <laughs> in that particular self-portrait. <laughs> what interests me about the incident is what happened after the young man had been overpowered, a case of conflicting pruderies, as the warders would not want to escort a naked man through the gallery, but at the same time might be reluctant to redress a naked and bearded man in a frock. 
When the case comes up in the magistrate's court and the young man is in the dock, he manages, despite being flanked by two policemen, to get naked again <laughs> and to streak across Parliament Square, generally dis displaying such a facility in stripping off that it's hard not to feel that that's where his future lies. <laughs> he turns out to be from Coventry, which is, of course, a place with some tradition of public nudity. <laughs> A woman writes to me saying that, having read a piece I'd written about him, she has tried to read Kafka, but without success. For the same reason, she asked at the library for something on Larkin, but seeing his photograph gave the book straight back. <laughs> he looked too much like Sergeant Bilko. The few archaeologists I've come across in life were shy, retiring and mildly eccentric. The archaeologists on television are loud, unprepossessing and extrovert. Their loudness and over-enthusiasm to be accounted for, I suppose, by the need to inject some immediacy into a process which, if properly undertaken, is slow, painstaking and more often than not, dull. Sir Mortimer Wheeler probably started the rot, then there was Glyn Daniel and his bow ties, and today it's Tony Robinson, capering about professing huge excitement because of the uncovering of the entirely predictable foundations of a Benedictine priory at Coventry. His enthusiasm is anything but infectious, and almost reconciles one to the bulldozer. <laughs> and there's always a spurious time limit, thus making it another version of ground force, <laughs> where a transformation has to be wrought in the space of three days. The timetable of the resurrection would just have suited the programme makers. <laughs> the angel appearing to Mary Magdalene in the garden was probably Alan Titchmarsh. <laughs> En route for Petersfield in Alec Guinness's funeral, I turn off the A3 to look at Ockham Church and eat my sandwich lunch in the churchyard. It's locked, but a rather grand woman who's working in the churchyard opens it up. Coming out, I thank her, and she says I'm lucky because she wouldn't normally be around, but they've been having trouble with the myrrh. The church hadn't seemed to me particularly ritualistic, so this puzzles me. The myrrh, I say. Yes. You mean the incense? No, no. The myrrh for the grass. <laughs> In the evening, I often bike round Regent's Park. Tonight I'm mooning along the inner circle past Bedford College when a distraught woman dashes out into the road and nearly fetches me off. She and her friend have found themselves locked in and have had to climb over the gate. 
her friend Mari hasn't made it. And there, laid along the top of one of the gates, is a plump 60-year-old lady. One leg either side of the gate, bawling to her friend to hurry up. I climb over and try and assess the situation. Good, says Mari, her cheek pressed against the gate. I can see you're of a scientific turn of mind. Her faith in science rapidly evaporates when I try moving her leg and she yells with pain. It's at this point that we become aware of an audience. <laughs> Three Chinese in the regulation rig out of embassy officials are watching the pantomime, smiling politely and clearly not sure if this is a pastime or a predicament. <laughs> Eventually they are persuaded to line up on the other side of the gate I hoist Mary over, she rolls comfortably down into their outstretched arms. There's much smiling and bowing. Mary's friend says all's well that ends well. Mary says she's laddered both her stockings and I cycle on my way. And this is about the foot and mouth disease um, in um, uh, 2001. Uh, much in our local Yorkshire papers, much in the local papers about how the hefted sheep will not be easily restocked, having been born on the fells and thus bred up to know its ways and its weather. They keep and teach their lambs to keep to their own patch and do not wander at will. They lamb every year by the same sheltered wall come lower down when they sense the cold is coming or a storm expected and all in all these sheep know a good deal and the farmers know that they know it. I wonder though if there are other things the sheep know that the farmers do not acknowledge. Do they know that their male lambs will be taken away a few months after they are born? Do they know or do they wonder where they are being taken on the vast two and three tier lorries that ship them halfway across the country to market? If they know so much by instinct Perhaps that is not all that they know, and they perhaps deserve to be treated differently on that account. In 50 years' time, I'm sure that we will not handle animals the way we do now, and to succeeding generations, our behaviour will seem as barbarous as bear baiting. Um, and finally, um, uh, when I can find it, um, Sitting in the car at Richmond, at Richmond in Yorkshire, waiting while Rupert has a look round, I see out of the corner of my eye a middle-aged woman crossing over towards the car with a broad smile on her face. I assume I've been recognised and am about to be accosted and compose my features in a look of kindly accommodation. <laughs> even so, I'm a little taken aback when the woman, without even knocking on the window, actually opens the car door. Still, I don't show any surprise. This is a fan, after all. But not merely does she open the door, she gets in, <laughs> sits down beside me, and closes the door. Still, I make no protest. She settles herself and finally turns to me, still smiling. Bloody hell, I'm in the wrong car. <laughs> And she bolts back along the pavement to her by now wildly gesticulating husband. 
The person who's really shown up by the story is, of course, me. I always tell the same story before question and answer because there's always an awkward gap. And uh, I, I started off as a medieval historian um, and uh, I did some rather desultory research at Oxford on, which never came to anything, but I, I delivered one paper on it to an undergraduate and graduate society. Uh, and at the end of this very boring paper, I said, are there any questions? And there was endless silence. Um, Eventually, a rather timid undergraduate at the back put his hand up and said, um, where did you buy your shoes? <laughs> so, uh, I think that put paid to my medieval history career. <laughs> I think we probably ought to have the lights up a bit because I can't see anybody uh, if they ask questions. That's it. Uh. Well, there's one over here. Since you got off the train in Waverley Station in 1959, mm. uh, you've written and performed a great deal. But as time's gone on, it seems to me that Yorkshire and your upbringing and, and your time in Leeds, and now that you live in Yorkshire for part of the year, all of that appears to have become more important to you. If that's, and more important to your work. And if that's true, why is it true? Uh, I think as you get older, you do tend to, th to obviously, you, you think back to your uh, origins, probably, and, and, uh, uh, and certainly you, uh, I mean, in Untold Stories, I, I did uh, tell the story of my life, uh, uh, my early life, and of my parents' early lives. Um, but, uh, and I, d I don't... Um, uh, I think people criticise you for this. I mean, it's not necessarily a, a, it's not. I don't say it's not a good thing, but but people often think that writers um, uh, exploit their own um, uh, background in the sense that they. And I, I certainly had one or two letters saying that I'd exploited my parents by talking about them. But on the other hand. Um, it's really the only true resource that a writer has got. Um, a writer I much admire, uh, Flannery O'Connor, said that um, anybody who survives their childhood uh, until the age of about 18 has enough material to last them the whole of their life. <laughs> uh, and I think that's true. Um, I, uh, it is true that I, write, I probably write more about Yorkshire than I used to. I certainly didn't start off by writing about Yorkshire. But uh, on the other hand, uh, I, thinking about what I want to do, such as it is, uh, that's not to do with Yorkshire. So I, d I don't think it's uh, monopolising my uh, uh, attention. Um, the reason why I, 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 thought, I thought about uh, arriving at Waverley Station in 1959 was because um, that was when I first appeared on the fringe with a, an Oxford theatre group review called Better Late which was um, on in the Cranston Street Hall. 
and, uh, and we, we uh, stayed in the Masonic Hall, I don't know if it's still there, the Masonic Hall up by the castle and slept, uh, slept on the floor of the Masonic Temple. And uh, I remember waking in the middle of the night and seeing the, the, I think the red lamp in the, in the Masonic Temple glowing in the dark. Um, and I thought Edinburgh then was uh, uh, the most wonderfully romantic place. It was like being abroad without any of the disadvantages. Really. <laughs> uh, and then the following year was when we became, we were part of the official festival and were in Beyond the Fringe. Uh, you, you said you weren't sure where the story about the Queen came from. Where, where, where do you think she came from? Was it the, th <laughs> was it the thing about travelling libraries, which yeah. is part of my childhood, as it must have been uh, yours? Yeah, I, 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 I think probably it is to do with travelling libraries. And I forbore to uh, investigate whether Westminster City Council had a travelling library. I'm sure they don't now. But I thought, I don't want to know that. I, uh, and... Um, but uh, there used to be a travelling library come to the village, and uh, uh, and it was very. It was the boy sitting in the aisle reading, very constricted. That was really what it was like. Um, but um, I don't know where it came from, uh, and I'm sure in some sense it's unfair to the Queen in that it implies that she probably had read less than she has. Though I don't. I, that's not a criticism. I I think of as a criticism really. Uh, but. Uh, it's um, if you if you read the story, it's um, it ends up quite radically, really, and uh, and not uh, and it's more of a criticism, if it is a criticism, of her uh, advisors and her people surrounding her, not of her. Uh, and I, I mean, I uh, I often think I'm the last monarchist, really. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I I I I don't think we. I, I think any any. Um, system we had that replaced the monarchy would be worse. Uh, I can't imagine how they would choose a president or what kind of person could be a president. Uh, and so uh, um, I know that they, the, the best things, uh, uh, the best uh, satire, I think, comes uh, out of affection. That you, you can, uh, uh, one, of, one of the things I started off in my career doing was uh, a cod sermon, Anglican sermon. Uh, and that wasn't because I believed these, the sermons as they were delivered were, were uh, wicked, but only that I'd sat through so many sermons, <laughs> I, uh, I just knew I could uh, write like one. And, and I was rather fond of them, really. Uh, and, uh, and similarly it is with the Queen, that uh, it comes out of affection, not, uh, not anything else. Uh, somebody, I'll just, uh, somebody said, did, did I enjoy Oxford when I was there? Um, Yes and no. Uh, I, 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 before I went, I was looking forward to it so enormously. I, 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 I thought my life was going to change, which it didn't really. Uh, what I did enjoy, rather paradoxically, was the period before Oxford when I was, did my national service. Uh, and I, uh, I went in the army and I was put on a course to learn Russian. And, uh, and I actually was, went to Cambridge on this course. And that was, I, I thought that was a wonderful time. Uh, and in a way it spoiled me for university. I had such a good time really when I was in the army. But you say that to people now and they, they kind of withdraw really. They cannot <laughs> believe you could have had a good time in the army. Anyway. I don't know if it's true, but, but I heard a suggestion that you'd been asked to do Celebrity Big Brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
and I completely understand why you turned it down if it is yeah. true, but I wondered if you'd any sympathy for those of us who would have loved to see you <laughs> in it. Uh, I, I, I was. They, they made an inquiry. They, um, uh, the, the, but it was, it, I don't know what, it's, what the, the proper name of it is. It's the one, the one where uh, Ant and Deck are in the, mid, on in the middle of a bridge in the jungle and there's... Uh, Wherever, this, wherever that is, I know that's uh, it's a kind of uh, celebrity get me out of here or something. That that was what they asked me to be on, um, and uh, uh, simply because I was um, intrigued, uh, I um, I got my agent to try and find out who the other people would be, <laughs> and they then got considerably overexcited because they thought I, you know I was uh, considering doing it. Uh, but uh, they were very cagey about who else it was going to be, and I can't actually. I think it was it was the one that was won by one of the uh, former members of Take That, I think. Uh, but uh, oh, I couldn't imagine anything worse. Uh, 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 and I'm, I hope Big Brother's on the way out. I really do. I mean, uh, it uh, it just is <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Uh, this one over there. I particularly enjoyed Talking Heads. Um, did you have a favourite one as the writer? And also, do you have a favourite actor of the many who performed them? Um, I don't know. They, it's difficult to talk about favourites because you, in a way, you you like the ones which you cherish the ones which. Uh, probably did less well than the others. I think the one, though I say it myself, which is uh, perfect, uh, well, there are two probably. Uh, the one Maggie Smith did was, was I thought, perfect. Uh, Bed Among the Lentils. Uh, particularly since she did it, it was very little rehearsal and, uh, and uh, she, I directed it, but she needed no direction. She just uh, did it. And some of the most magical things in it are hers. Uh, and so that one, and, and uh, any one of Patricia Routledge's ones are, are, uh, are first rate. Uh, partly because with her, it's not immediately obvious why she's so good, but it's, I think the thing is that it's her sense of timing is so extraordinary that she can, she can split a second. She can do something in the first part of the second uh, and, and something else in the second. It's like a, a musician would understand it. Uh, but uh, and she can glance at the camera for half a second and then go on with the piece. And I, she, I think that that's the secret of her skill. The Thoris ones are re remarkable as well, simply because nobody else could have done them, and because she, she was so, she was playing a real age. Although she didn't see it as like that, she, uh, she, because um, at the end of one take she said, uh, uh, "Was I old enough?" Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, uh, they, but the one, uh, the one I, I like, uh, which I was taken to task for, was um, um, uh, one called Nights in the Gardens of Spain, uh, which Penelope Wilton did, uh, and uh, and I thought that was, I thought she did it superbly. I may have got it wrong. I don't know. I was, I think I was told off because I had old-fashioned attitudes towards women, which I, I don't think I do. Uh, it's just, uh, it implied that uh, the, 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 the critics who disliked it implied that the whole nature of women had changed. 
and that they were all masters of their own fate. And I don't think that's true, alas. But uh, so I, that's another one that I, I really like. Can I follow up on the theme of your plays? Mm -hmm. um, how do you feel about your plays, unlike your books and your short stories and your diaries, where you have 100% control right to the end, and mm. when the script is passed on, you see things happening with actors and directors and others. How do you feel? Do you feel remote? Do you feel close? How do you feel about this interpretation of your work by other people? Well, uh, the, the first production of a, of a stage play, I'm always involved with that, so I, I go to all the rehearsals. Uh, the last one, uh, The History Boys, uh, uh, I, I was there every day. Uh, and a multi, it was an immensely enjoyable play to do, so uh, it, that wasn't like work. Uh, and so that um, uh, I know exactly what is going to be on the stage. Uh, I have a very good, I've worked for the last 15 years with Nicholas Heitner uh, at the National Theatre. And, uh, and so I'm on, uh, we have a very unspoken, mostly, understanding. Um, and uh, so the first production of anything that I do, uh, normally, uh, I approve of and oversee. Then it seems to me uh, you have to let go of it, uh, and you have to think of it as being in a. You have to think of yourself as a dead author, really. Uh, and what anybody else makes of it, well, then that's you know that's up to them. Uh, and people often ask me to go and see product, particularly Talking Heads, to go and see productions. And I never go, not because I don't appreciate it, but because. I did differ from what they did, probably, and, uh, but that didn't mean to say that my interpretation would be better than theirs. Uh, you just have to let it go and try and get on with something else. Um, I think probably I ought to just do one more question and then I'll, I'll finish. Could you tell us about some of your favourite authors and, and books, and particularly the ones that have influenced you most? Um, well, the, the one of the authors I... I I don't think she influenced me, but I made me realise what writing was, uh, was uh, the author I mentioned earlier on, Flannery O'Connor, who, uh, who, who died quite young. She was a, a Southern American writer, uh, led a very restricted life because she suffered from lupus uh, and died, as I say, died quite young. And, she, and her stories are... Uh, totally remote from anything I, I would find sympathetic in the sense that she was very, very religious writer, um, and, but so religious it's somehow instinct in every sentence she writes. I mean, people say that Graham Greene is a, is a religious writer. He doesn't compare with, with Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor just... Uh, she sees everything uh, uh, through... through uh, the prism of a, of a, in some ways, not very uh, lovable God, but but it makes the universe so dramatic. Uh, I, I think her stories are wonderful. The only uh, thing that people might, who haven't read any, any of her might have come across her in is a film that John Houston did of, of uh, a novel of hers called Wise Blood. Uh, but uh, she, I, I like her a great deal. Um, uh, other authors, I don't know really. That it spoils you for re reading, does writing. You know, if you um, 
if you read anything and you think, oh, this is far better than I can do, you get really depressed. Uh, uh, and if it's not as good, you think, oh, well, I don't know why this thing got pressed. <laughs> so either way, you lose, you know. And it's the same with plays. You, uh, you know, you, 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 it really spoils you. Anyway, I'll just finish off with a um, tiny little uh, reading from... Um, uh, if I can find it. Uh, here we are. Uh, about a, it's a, a bit a, an occasion like this, really. Do a question and answer se uh, session at Warwick Arts Centre. The talk is preceded by a book signing, at which, having had her book signed, a woman leans low over the table to confide in me. I'd like to be buried in a little grave right next to yours. <laughs> when I say I hope this won't be quite yet, she says, well, I'm the same age as you are, as if this somehow made our posthumous propinquity more of a likelihood. <laughs> Right, okay.